Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Nefarious. For those of you who are new here, welcome. My name is Bailey Butchie and I am a student currently studying at Arizona State University. I am studying criminal justice and forensic psychology and this podcast is part of my final thesis project for my undergraduate degrees. If you have not already, I suggest going back and listening to the first episode of this podcast. It just offers a little bit more information and an introduction of who I am and what this project is all about. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about the crimes and the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. This case was a huge case in the media due to the political aspect of the case, but it also brings up a lot of interesting discussion in the legal realm with his defense of self-defense. So I just kind of thought it would be an interesting case to look more at in depth and kind of just break down and look at the details of. So with that being said, let's go ahead and jump right in. So as we all know, 2020 was a crazy year. It was unlike anything that most of us have ever seen before with the COVID-19 pandemic and just like the death toll that came from that, as well as the economic recession that we found ourselves in from the murder of George Floyd and the global protests against systemic racism and police violence to the election of Joe Biden as the 46th president and just everything in between. There was numerous events that occurred during 2020. One of the events that occurred during this time that just kind of sets the context for what we will be further talking about today occurred on August 23rd, 2020, when officers of the Kenosha Police Department responded to a call regarding a domestic violence situation and an outstanding warrant on an individual named Jacob Blake. Once on the scene, after some interaction with Blake, one of the officers responding actually shot him seven times in the back, which resulted in him being hospitalized for his injuries and paralyzed from the waist down. This shooting sparked many protests throughout the city of Kenosha, as well as across the country. Um, Most of them were led by the Black Lives Matter movement and were largely motivated with the anger towards both racism and police violence against people of color. At these protests, specifically the ones that occurred in Kenosha, these protesters were met with a variety of counter-protesters who were heavily armed and basically they took it upon themselves to be present at the protest as a means for protecting businesses from the riots and the looters that accompanied these protests. So tensions between the two groups grew over the days of the protests and on August 25th, 2020, Joseph Rosenbaum, Anthony Huber, and Gage Grosskreutz were shot at the hands of 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse. Grosskreutz was wounded by the shot, whereas both Rosenbaum and Huber did die due to being shot. So we're going to recount some of the events of the night and go into just a little bit more detail of what was said to have occurred. Most of this information comes directly from Kyle Rittenhouse's testimony at his trial. According to Kyle himself, he actually had originally gone down to the area of the protest with the goal to provide first aid to those who may need it, as he was certified in first aid and CPR, so he kind of had a background of being able to help individuals who were injured. And so he went down in with his goal to provide first aid to those who needed it, as well to protect the businesses in the area. He had a couple of friends or acquaintances that owned some businesses and called upon him and some other individuals to kind of help protect those businesses from the protests. Rittenhouse said that he 
brought his rifle with him as a means for protection because if he did find himself in a situation where he needed to provide first aid to someone, he kind of thought that he would be going like front line and center into the action and just wanted to have his rifle with him to protect himself from anything that could potentially go wrong. Rittenhouse details his first interactions with Rosenbaum. Both of them occurred just kind of in passing where Rosenbaum and Rittenhouse were passing one another on the streets. Rittenhouse said that Rosenbaum had threatened to kill him and those that he was with at the time. Rittenhouse kind of just like brushed it off at first and said that it was probably due to like the tensions of the protests and just kind of the protesters and the counter protesters coming to head. But he just kind of went along with his night and never really thought anything of it. However, later in the evening, Rittenhouse received a call from one of his friends he was with, Dominic Black, who told him about a fire occurring at one of the the businesses further down the road, and he asked him to go handle the situation, just kind of put out the fire and see what was happening down there. So Rittenhouse did as he was asked, and he went down to this business to kind of see what was going on. Upon arriving is when he saw Rosenbaum again for the third time that night. Rittenhouse says that when he came to the business, he announced himself by saying friendly, 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 just to kind of let those that were there know that he was just there to kind of see what was happening and to kind of scan the area and the situation and get a better idea of what was going down. Rittenhouse says despite this friendly, friendly, friendly remark, he actually found himself face to face with Zeminski, who was holding a pistol. And Rosenbaum was on his right-hand side, so Rittenhouse said he was essentially trapped between these two men. Rittenhouse then said he heard Zeminski tell Rosenbaum, get him and kill him, at which point Rittenhouse turned and ran, but Rosenbaum actually gave chase, and he threw something at Rittenhouse, which later turned out to be a bag, but at the time, Rittenhouse said he believed it was a silver chain. And Rittenhouse responded by turning around and pointing his gun at Rosenbaum while he continued running. However, Rittenhouse soon stopped running, which he accredited to the amount of people ahead of him and the lack of room to continue, and he turned around to see Rosenbaum lunging at him, at which point Rittenhouse had shot him four times. Rittenhouse states that he immediately went to check on Rosenbaum and see if there was any way that he could help him, but he soon decided that his safest option would be to return to the police line and turn himself in after hearing Zeminski shout, get him, get him, get him. Rittenhouse claims that there was a mob of people chasing him on his way to the police, yelling, get him and kill him. And during this chase, he says that he recalls being hit in the neck with Huber's skateboard, where he had attempted to keep running after being hit, but he actually found himself being lightheaded and he fell to the ground. Well, on the ground, Rittenhouse said that people surrounded him and he pointed his rifle in their general direction. So most of them backed up when he did this, but there was one person who has still not been identified who advanced on Rittenhouse while he was on the ground and kicked him in the face, to which Rittenhouse responded by firing two shots. Immediately following the kick to the face and these shots, Huber attempted to hit Rittenhouse in the neck with his skateboard a second time and tried to grab his gun and pull it from Rittenhouse's arms, to which Rittenhouse responded by firing a single shot at Huber. After firing the shot and lowering his weapon, Rittenhouse said that Grosskreutz was standing right in front of him and that he lunged at him with his pistol pointing at Rittenhouse's head, to which Rittenhouse responded by firing yet another single shot. Following this, Rittenhouse had attempted to turn himself into the Kenosha Police Department, but he was pretty much ignored by the Kenosha Police that were on the scene. They were kind of just dealing with the riots and the protests and everything else that was happening and providing aid to those that were shot, but Rittenhouse just kind of escaped their attention. 
but he did eventually turn himself into the Antioch Police Department in Illinois, informing him that he was the one involved in the shooting and that he must speak to a Kenosha detective. So Rittenhouse was charged on six different counts. So he was charged with first-degree reckless homicide, use of a dangerous weapon, first-degree recklessly endangering safety, use of a dangerous weapon, first-degree intentional homicide, use of a dangerous weapon, attempted first-degree intentional homicide, use of a dangerous weapon, first-degree recklessly endangering safety, use of a dangerous weapon, and possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. But that charge of the possession of a dangerous weapon was actually dropped by the judge during the trial right before closing statements. Rittenhouse pled not guilty to all six of the counts and maintained that he acted solely in self-defense. Rittenhouse said that each time he had shot his rifle, he was in fear for his life and saw it as the only option given the situation. Numerous times throughout his testimony, when asked why he did not shoot at specific people or specific groups of people, Rittenhouse claimed that it was because he did not see them as a threat and he did not fear for his life or his safety in that moment. Just kind of like solidifying his claims that he only shot at people when he thought that they posed a fear to his life or to his safety. And on November 19, 2021, Rittenhouse was acquitted of all charges. So in order to best understand just kind of the outcome of this trial, what happened during this trial, Rittenhouse's claims during this trial, all of that, it is crucial to look deeper into the idea of self-defense as a legal defense. So this information on self-defense comes from the University of Minnesota Libraries Publishing and their book on criminal law. So self-defense is considered a defense of justification, which means that the defendant acknowledges that the crime was committed, but states that the action was justified in some sense. Self-defense usually consists of four different elements that the defendant must prove in order for it to be a successful defense. So the first is that the defendant must have been a non-aggressor, meaning he was provoked by another. His response must have been intimate and necessary. The response was proportional to the context of the situation, and there was a reasonable belief that the response was necessary to avoid injury or death. So just kind of breaking down those elements a little bit further. So the non-aggressor provocation element means that the defendant did not initiate the attack. If the defendant were the one to initiate the attack, then they could not claim self-defense in that situation. There are two notable exceptions to this element. Um, the first is being that if the defendant does attack first and the attack responds with an excessive force in comparison to the situation, the defendant may still be able to claim self-defense. The second exception is that if the defendant attacked first but then withdrew themselves from the situation and the person that was attacked in the first place persists and continues the entire interaction, then the defendant could also claim self-defense. The element of imminence or necessity just means that the attack is immediate and that the response is required now. So a defendant cannot claim self-defense if they respond to an attack that happened in the past or if they respond in a way that would prevent an attack from happening in the future. Their response must be to an attack that happened in that moment and at that time. The proportionality element is largely concerned with the use of deadly force, basically just stating that deadly force should not be used in a situation when non-deadly force would suffice. It largely looks at what a reasonable person would view as a reasonable use of force in the given circumstances of the situation. So according to the Model Penal Code, deadly force is not reasonable or justifiable unless the actor believes that such force is necessary to protect himself against death, serious bodily harm, kidnapping, or sexual intercourse compelled by force or threat. And then the final element, the reasonable belief element, 
is once again based on the assumption that a reasonable person would view the actions as necessary in order to avoid injury or death. So basically, it's just stating that defending yourself in the way that you did in that particular situation was the most reasonable option available to ensure your own safety. So when looking at these definitions in relation to Rittenhouse, it could be argued that all four elements of this self-defense were present in each of the attacks of that night. So when looking specifically at the provocation element, it appears that in all the situations that Rittenhouse fired his firearm, he did not provoke the situations. Specifically looking at his interaction with Rosenbaum, Rittenhouse actually turned and ran and tried to flee the situation, to which Rosenbaum actually chased him, and then once they came face to face, he was the one that lunged at him. So it looks in that situation as if Rosenbaum was the one that provoked the attack and that he was the aggressor in the situation. In the interaction with Huber, Rittenhouse was running past when Huber hit him in the neck with the skateboard, not once, but actually twice. And so in this situation, it also appears as if he was the one who provoked the attack, as he was the one who initially attacked Rittenhouse first. When looking at his interaction with Grosskreutz, um, according to Rittenhouse, while he was on the ground, Grosskreutz was the one that charged at him, and he was also holding a gun while doing so, showing that he was the aggressor in the situation and that he was the one who provoked the initial attack. In relation to Rittenhouse, the element of imminence and necessity kind of showcases itself through the fact that these interactions were all relatively short, with both the attack and the response happening in that very moment. According to Rittenhouse's recount of events, it seemed that there was no sort of grudge held by either of these men. Besides his couple interactions with Rosenbaum beforehand, it appears that Rittenhouse had never actually met these men before, had never interacted with them, and so it could be argued that the response to what had happened was more so reflective of what was happening in the moment rather than some sort of like grudge or some sort of reaction to what had happened in the past. The element of proportionality is where it gets a little bit trickier when looking specifically at the Rittenhouse case just because of the subjectivity of the element and kind of like the decision of whether or not Rittenhouse's use of deadly force was reasonable given the situation. There's not really any fine lines that like specifically describe what this should look like in each case and it is based a lot off of the context of the situation and so therefore it's kind of harder to discern whether or not it should be seen as reasonable. So according to Wisconsin self-defense law, the actor may not intentionally use force which is intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm unless the actor reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself or herself. Clearly, due to the acquittal of all of his charges, the jury in this case believed that a reasonable person in Rittenhouse's shoes would use a deadly amount of force in the circumstances that he had faced. When looking at the facts of this case, there is some potential like rationale for why the jury may have decided this. I think it's largely based on the degree of threats that were posed in each of the interactions. So once again, looking at Rittenhouse's interaction with Rosenbaum... As Rittenhouse recounts, Zeminski told Rosenbaum to get him and kill him, and then Rosenbaum immediately gave chase to Rittenhouse. In this situation, a reasonable person may believe that Rosenbaum was trying to kill them, and therefore it was kill or be killed, and that is why Rittenhouse decided to use the deadly amount of force. He specifically heard Zeminski say, get him and kill him, and so therefore he thought that his life was in danger and that the only way to respond would be to use deadly force. 
In his interaction with Huber, it's slightly similar, but just the threat is a little bit different. So when the shots were fired against Huber, Rittenhouse had already been hit once in the head with the skateboard, and due to this hit, he was lightheaded and fell to the ground and found himself to be in danger due to the people that were surrounding him and the people that were coming at him. And there was also no telling what the effect of a second hit to the head may have had on Rittenhouse. It could have just severely injured him. It could have possibly killed him. There's just kind of no way to say what that effect would be since it did not actually happen. I also think that in this situation, the fact that Rittenhouse fired just a single shot rather than multiple shots may have played in his favor because it kind of showed that no excessive force was used given that Rittenhouse fired a single shot and that Anthony Huber was also wielding a weapon at the time of the shot. Rittenhouse's interaction with Grosskreutz was very similar to that of Huber in that Grosskreutz had a weapon and was pointed at Rittenhouse while advancing on him while he was on the ground. So Grosskreutz standing up already had some sort of advantage on Rittenhouse who was laying on the ground, but then Grosskreutz also had a weapon in his hand as well. Similar to his interaction with Huber, I also think the fact that Rittenhouse only fired one shot may have helped his case because then the threat posed was equal to Rittenhouse's response. So as I mentioned before, Grosskreutz had a weapon, as did Rittenhouse, and so a reasonable person could believe that if Rittenhouse were not to shoot, then he would be shot. And then the fourth and final element in connection to Rittenhouse's case is that of reasonable belief. And I think an important disclaimer to make is that reasonable belief element on its own does not consider the use of deadly force, but it rather simply examines whether or not a reasonable person would view self-defense as the only available option to avoid injury or death. I think that you could argue in this case that any reasonable person would see self-defense as a reasonable option. Given the heightened tensions between individuals in light of the protests and just kind of the overall air of violence within this environment, If Rittenhouse were to not have acted in any way or defended himself in any shape or form, it could have been argued that he would be seriously injured or possibly even dead. I think that, once again, I'm not saying in any way that deadly force was the means necessary to do this, but reasonable belief just kind of looks at the idea of self-defense in general. doesn't really look at whether or not deadly force is necessary. That's the proportionality element. So in this case, it can be argued that reasonable belief, self-defense was needed in order to avoid injury or death. But despite personal beliefs of Kyle Rittenhouse's guilt and personal opinions regarding the outcome of the trial, given the elements of self-defense and the details of the events that occurred, it would be pretty hard to dispute that his legal claims of self-defense. We just kind of went through all the elements and how they apply to Rittenhouse's crimes, and I think it's kind of obvious that Based on these elements and what would suffice as a successful claim of self-defense, Rittenhouse seems to have all of the elements covered. He seems to have a good defense of self-defense. When looking at the case of Rittenhouse and both his crimes and his trial, it is also necessary to take a look at the political connection or the political affiliation that his crimes had, his trial had, and he himself had. So following the events and the shootings that occurred, lots of the public were very quick to take a side. They were very quick to decide whether or not they believed that Rittenhouse had acted in self-defense or if they believed that he had intentionally killed these people as part of his movement as a counter-protester. Much of this was due to the height of political tensions during this time and the way that each party just kind of utilized Rittenhouse as a weapon for their cause. So the Republicans deemed 
Rittenhouse as a vigilante hero, whereas the Democrats kind of labeled him as a domestic terrorist. And overnight, Rittenhouse became a beacon of politics. And really, his case only kind of served to further polarize the nation during a time of already heightened political tensions and already like a very divided nation. So when looking at how the Republicans viewed Rittenhouse, as I mentioned, they saw him as a vigilante hero, but they also blamed the Democratic officials of Kenosha for allowing their city to burn and to succumb to looters and rioters and all of that. And they actually applauded Rittenhouse and the other armed citizens for taking control of the situation and basically putting an end to it, I guess you could say. Like they saw Rittenhouse as a hero because they thought that Democrat officials were failing to take control of their city, and they saw Rittenhouse as being able to do what those officials could not do. As part of this kind of idolization of Rittenhouse, he himself was also receiving millions of dollars in donations from many Republicans, which went towards paying his bail as well as paying for his defense at trial. Rittenhouse himself also identified as a Republican, and his social media presence showed him attending Trump rallies, having a very distinct interest in guns, and he had a love for the police. He always said like how he admired the police and he wanted to grow up and be part of law enforcement or a public officer. He, as I mentioned earlier, he had been training in first aid and CPR. He also partook in a couple EMT courses and kind of like early on like police level involvement, just kind of that was what he wanted to do with his life. He knew that when he grew up, he wanted to be a public officer in some way, some form. I think it also should be mentioned that there has been absolutely no connection between Rittenhouse's political beliefs and the events that took place during the protests. His political affiliation probably played a part in why he was at the protests in the first place. As we mentioned, he was there because he was there to kind of like back the blue and provide support to the police and to the businesses and that kind of idea. But that doesn't go to say that his political affiliations were the reason that he shot people that night, which... We'll get into that a little bit more later. So on the other side of the political spectrum, Democrats saw, as I mentioned, Rittenhouse as a domestic terrorist who specifically and intentionally targeted these protesters. This is kind of where his political affiliation comes into play because they saw him as a Republican and a white supremacist who used this opportunity of the protest to commit violence against those who believed in something that he did not believe in, which was like the abolishment of the police or the fact that like they didn't agree with the police because Rittenhouse was very adoring of the police, like that whole kind of thing, which Rittenhouse's allegiance to law enforcement and his desire to be a public officer had many people believing that these shootings were intentional and they were not the case of self-defense. As we mentioned earlier, These protests were because of the shooting of Jacob Blake, and therefore they were against police brutality, against police violence, against racial minorities. And so by Rittenhouse coming to this protest and being on the side of the counter-protesters, many of the Democrats saw this as he supported police brutality, he supported police violence against racial minorities, and that he was a white supremacist racist who just kind of upheld this idea of violence, which although he was a Republican, I'm not sure if this can exactly be argued. There's no specific evidence that asserts this was true. A lot of investigation was done into Rittenhouse's background and to see if he had any allegiance to any known white supremacy groups and there was nothing found. So it's kind of hard to decide of whether or not this is actually true or if this is just kind of a narrative that people are playing up in order to make him seem more guilty of the crimes and make the crime seem intentional rather than an act of self-defense. 
The Democrats also used this crime as a platform to advocate for gun control, especially following the dismissal of the charge for possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under the age of 18 and the subsequent acquittal of all charges because they saw this as kind of just basically they thought that Kyle Rittenhouse had gotten away with this, that he that his acquittal of all his charges and the dropping of the gun possession charges altogether just kind of further promoted the gun culture of America and it set a precedent that any minor can purchase a gun, carry it across state lines, kill someone, and essentially escape all consequences. So Democrats largely used this as a platform for gun control because they thought that this case itself showcased everything that was wrong with gun legislation in America. As I said, political tensions during this time were at an all-time high due to many of the protests pitting two groups against each other between Black Lives Matter and Police Lives Matter and Back the Blue versus protests against police brutality and police violence against racial minorities. It was just kind of at this time where their tensions were high. There was a lot of interaction between these two groups that was surrounded by violence and surrounded by an air of hostility. And Rittenhouse was just used as a way to further divide the nation and to pit these two sides against one another. This case would have just been like any other case, but it became a national media frenzy due to such a polarization between these two groups And a 17-year-old became a political celebrity overnight because of what people perceived he stood for or stood against. I think it would be impossible to address this case in its totality without acknowledging the relationship between this case and politics, as well as the influence that this outcome may have on many events to come. The political idealization of Kyle Rittenhouse and the details of this case could have a dangerous effect on our nation because it could potentially embolden others to act in the same way. But it could also provide our nation with some clarity on where we went wrong and how to address this issue in future policy and practice. I do know and I want to acknowledge that politics are a bit of a touchy subject for many, as clearly demonstrated by this case. And so I don't want to go into too much detail on this podcast about politics and like this very specifics because that's simply just not the purpose of this platform. But as I mentioned before, it would be impossible to provide the fullest picture of this case without mentioning, just merely mentioning the connection that I had to politics. It was a media frenzy due to its politics, and that played a large role in why this case was as visible as it was. But with that being said, I hope this episode and the explanation of what self-defense looks like from a legal standpoint just kind of gave you some more information on the case, helps you better understand what happened overall, and just kind of gave you more insight into what actually occurred rather than what the media told you occurred. I tried to stay as objective as possible and just look at the facts of this case and how this case connects to like the legal proceedings and the legal definitions of self-defense and all that kind of stuff. But if for any reason I did offend anyone with what I said or how I went about this case, I do apologize. But that is all I have for now. So thank you guys for listening to another episode of Nefarious. I hope you learned something. I hope you enjoyed this case, this discussion, and I can't wait to see you guys next time for another fun case.